Now, in church circles, we normally end all of our meetings with prayer, don't we? Well, the apostle here does exactly the same. He concludes his letter to the Hebrews with prayer. He's been giving them incredible doctrine, mighty doctrine about the person of Christ. But his final words to them are words of prayer. And in fact, there's, there's two prayers in particular that we're going to see here. First of all, we're going to see the people's prayer for their pastor. And then we're going to notice the pastor's prayer for the people. So let's begin with the people's prayer for their pastor in verses 18 and 19. Uh, the apostle is always keen that the believers would respect their leaders. He, he always stresses that, the importance of recognizing their God-given authority and having tremendous respect for them. But key to this is the whole business of prayer. Quite simply, believers need to pray for their leaders. They need to pray for their pastors. That is part of their responsibility to respect them. And it also produces good results in the lives of their pastors, and as a result of that, good results in the life of the congregation. Let me say this to you folks. In a real sense, you get the minister that you pray for. You really do. See, Philip here can't preach. Um, no, that's not the end of the sentence. <laughs> Philip here can't preach unless you are faithful in prayer for him. He can't be what you need him to be, and more importantly, what God wants him to be unless you pray for him. It really is that simple. Now, he's a great guy, tremendous pastor. Uh, I had my, my cousin and her husband in our house for dinner on Friday night, and she had been dealing with Philip uh, it was either that day or a day or two before. She works in church house. And she said, see that Philip Thompson? Brilliant. He's so lovely. Uh, I'm used to dealing with gruff old ministers. But Philip was brilliant. And she meant that most sincerely. And that's true. But that's not enough. His own personality is not enough. He needs and he craves your prayers. Uh, it is that simple. And the apostle knows that. And so in verse 18 here, he urges his people, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. You see, he, he mentions this clear conscience because he knows that there were many of the Hebrews who were upset with him. They had held to long cherished Jewish traditions and practices, and he had systematically demolished all of them in this letter. He exalted Christ. He lifted Christ high. He pointed them to the, the sacrifice, the all-sufficient substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And he basically said to them, look, be done with all the substandard, second-rate things of Judaism. And you can imagine that a lot of his readers would have been quite annoyed with him because nobody 
but nobody likes their traditions taken away because we're people who are welded to our traditions. And that's been the same down through all the ages. And so he says here, my conscience is clear. I've done what I had to do. I have spoken the truth to you at all times. So trust me in all of this and show that trust by praying for me. And what does he ask the Hebrews to pray for, for their pastor? Two things, really. To pray about the quality of his life and to pray for the renewal of his contact with them. The quality of his life, first of all. You see, the apostle's desire is to act honorably in all things. And the core meaning of this is that he wishes to set a lovely, lovely example of Christian living to all. That's what he wants to do. But he can't do that in his own strength. His own strength is not enough. He needs the power of God if he is to be enabled to do that. And to that end, he needs God's people pleading with the Father for him. Listen, dear people of Connor, pray constantly for this man, Philip, that his living might continue to be consistent with the truth of God's Word, because he will be under pressure. The world we live in today is a world that tries to drag people away from the truth of God's Word, and particular pastors, ministers, are put under pressure all the time to dilute the Word and to have different standards and not to, not to live it out. I heard recently of a young minister, and there's a member of his congregation that said, I'm not going back to church while that man is there. He's just far too religious. A minister who's religious, imagine that. But pray that Philip would be consistent with the truth of God's word, not only in his preaching, but in his living and that he might set an example of what a Christian ought to be. Because like myself, he is a sinner prone to falling and failing. And he needs you to plead his case before the Father that he might have power to live an even better life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Without that prayer, he can't do it. And I suppose that would be one thing that I would leave with you as I take my my leave from you. Pray for him. Please, please pray for him. He said earlier on that you would pray for me, and that's brilliant, but it's more important that you pray for him, that he could be all that God wants him to be. The second thing he's asking prayer for the apostle here, the renewal of his contact with them. He's been prevented by circumstances from revisiting these people and so he asked them to pray in a particular way. Verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He quite simply wants to come back to them from where he is. His pastor's heart yearns for them. And so he asks that they actually ask God to let him come back to them. So that's the prayer for their pastor. And I know you want to pray for your pastor, but let me say one thing to you. You can't pray unless you're first saved. Oh, you can say prayers, but they get stuck at the roof. 
If you want to be a person of prayer, if you want to be a prayer warrior who prays for your pastor and your congregation, first and foremost, you must come and yield your life and your heart to the Lord Jesus. There's no other way. But let's move on rapidly to the pastor's prayer for his people in verses 20 and 21. You see, this apostle is not self-centered in any way. He doesn't just want them to pray for him. He now sets the example for them by praying for them. And brothers and sisters, it is a mighty, mighty prayer here. You see, he wants them to be all that God wants them to be. So he prays a prayer for them that is focused on God. He turns the attention away from himself. He turns it to where it belongs, to God, because only God can accomplish that which is needful in the lives of people. So his focus is firmly on God. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, he describes God in some mighty terms in that prayer. First of all, he speaks of the God of peace. It's only God who can create peace in the hearts of people, peace with himself, peace with each other. Because the truth is that we're all born enemies of God at war with God. And that has to be stopped. That has to be changed. You and I can't change that. Only God can come and change that. Only God in His mighty power can come by His Holy Spirit and draw you to Jesus Christ and remake your heart so that you call on Christ for mercy, for forgiveness, and when you come to Christ, then you have peace with God, because He is the God of peace. And of course, that salvation then works its way out into peace with other brothers and sisters. Unless you get the vertical right, you'll never get the horizontal right. But when the vertical is right, it spills into the horizontal, so that we're prepared to forgive one another hurts, so that we're prepared to put one another first so that we are prepared to really be the children of God in a church family, glorifying God, the God of peace he's praying to. But secondly, he's praying to the God of power. There's not a single person who can serve Christ in their own power. It doesn't work. If you try to do it in your own strength, in your own might, you fall in your face and you make an absolute mess of it. Nobody can keep up the Christian life in the sense of living a consistent Christian life through their own efforts. Sometimes when I'm talking to people about their need to come to Christ, they'll say, look, I know I need to be saved, but I could never keep it up. And my answer is, of course you won't be able to keep it up. But God will keep you up. Christ will keep you in His hands. His Holy Spirit will empower you and enable you. You see, your own efforts are not enough. It's external power that is needed. Uh, 
you know, I was reminded of that a number of years ago, a good number of years ago. Some of you, some of the Kells people will remember this, that the manse barn down at the old manse before it was flattened had to be renovated. And when it was being renovated, there were two plumbers who were working at the barn to make sure that there was a, a you know, a good supply to the boiler that would keep everything going well and all that kind of thing. But somehow they managed to get water into the electric plugs and the sockets beside the boiler. And as a result, every time we switched on the electric to the boiler, the whole house supply absolutely tripped and it wouldn't work at all. So the intrepid plumbers, they took the plugs and sockets apart and they examined them for water, but you know, they couldn't see any. But it must have been there because every time the switch was put down, everything tripped. And you know, that reminds me, friends, of the power of sin in a life. The smallest of sins has a devastating effect in your life. You may not be able to see it. It may be something that you've never considered something that you just fall into without thinking about it at all. You may consider yourself to be decent and upright compared to others, but the sin is there, and it has huge, huge consequences. So back to the plumbers. They took everything apart, and they dried it all with tissue. They even blew on the electric wires, and they shook it put it all together again, but the unseen water was still there. Down went the switch, bang went the trip. Eventually, they called for something far more powerful. An extension lead was run from our house to the boiler house, and a hairdryer was put to work. And the heat from the dryer soon dried up all of that unseen water and everything just worked. Now, do you see the point I'm trying to make with that illustration? Just like the water, sin cannot be dealt with by human effort. External power is needed, the mighty power of God. Now, we all know that in terms of salvation, don't we? Every one of us here knows that. We can't save ourselves. We need the power of God. But do you recognize that with regards to sanctification and service? As a believer, you can't effectively get rid of residual sin in your daily life by your own strength. And you can't serve Christ through your own efforts alone. Just as the tissues and the blowing couldn't get rid of the unseen water and make the boiler work, so your efforts will never sanctify you. Justification, we're told in the Catechism, is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. In other words, when you come to Christ, you're justified like that. But sanctification is a lifelong experience. But it is the work of God's grace. It's the work of God's power. You know... Your residual sin can only be dealt with by the power, 
not of a hairdryer, but of God's grace. And your service will only be enabled by the power of God's grace. And just in case that you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking that God's power is not enough to both save you and enable you to live as a Christian, verse 20 reminds you of something important. It reminds you that God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. What you're being told there is that that incredible power which raised Christ from the dead is actually available to you to help you to live for Jesus if you're a Christian. Have you got that? The power of God that raised Christ from the dead is there within you, for you, to enable you to serve Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it glorious? And then the third description here is the God of pastoral love. Verse 20 describes Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. In all my years around this part of the world, I've learned something about sheep. They're white and woolly and they have a leg at each corner. But the image of the shepherd is a powerful one, isn't it? It speaks of the love and care that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And there's a lovely message coming across here. Not only does God have the power to help you to live for him, he also loves you enough to want to do it. He's not remote. He's not distant. He's not a God who lives away up there, a God who doesn't care. He is the God who has reached down to us in Jesus Christ, his son. And as a Christian, if you're saved here tonight, you should never say, I can't do that, it's too hard. A Christian must always say, if God wants me to do something for him, he loves me enough to deliver the power to enable me to do it. The God of amazing grace says to you, there is nothing impossible for you when I call you to do it and ask you to do it. I love you enough to give you the power to do it. There's an old poem that puts it well. The will of God can never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The fourth and final thing that he describes God as, the God of covenant blood. God, you see, has entered into an everlasting covenant with his people. He has said, I will always be your God and you will always be my people. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And that everlasting covenant, the apostle reminds us, is sealed in the blood of Jesus. Verse 20 says that God is the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood that was shed on Calvary assures the salvation of God's people. 
and it guarantees God's eternal presence with his people. And though thus having focused the Hebrews' mind on the greatness of God, the wonder of God, the majesty of God, the love of God, he then prays that this incredible God would do something in and through these believers. Verse 21, he would equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, he wants God both to equip them for service and to bring pleasure and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the apostle is simply praying that these Christians might know more and more of the power of God in their lives in order that they might serve him more and more. Because getting saved is not about getting a ticket to heaven where you can just sit back and put your feet up on the, on the cushions, as it were, and wait for the final day to come. No. Getting saved is not just about you and what you get out of it. It is most definitely about God and what God gets out of it you're a Christian here tonight, He has saved you so that you can serve Him, so that you can live for Jesus, so that your living will glorify Jesus Christ, so that God will be well pleased with you, and that they will get their pleasure and enjoyment, these Hebrews, from bringing pleasure to God. I wonder, do you grasp that? That the real pleasure in life does not come from possessions. It doesn't even come from health. It doesn't come from position. It doesn't come from popularity or friends. The real pleasure in life comes from bringing pleasure to God. Oh, let's, let's try this one, good Presbyterians. What is man's chief end? Amen. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's as you glorify God in your living that you find true enjoyment in God. All your possessions could be stripped away. Your health could be broken like that. Your position could be torn from you. You could lose friends and family. But if you have God, if you are serving God through faith in Christ, you have absolutely everything and you can still have pleasure and enjoyment. Oh, listen, Jesus Christ saves. That's our message, isn't it? But Christ also equips for service. And it's only in living for him as you should, a life of obedience to him and his word, that you will ever find real joy and real purpose. And that, in a nutshell, sums up the whole message of this book and the whole message of what Paul is saying or what the, the apostle is saying at the very end. That's why he writes in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
He's saying, look, listen to what I'm saying. Take it on board. Bear with me in this because I want what's best for you. I want you to know Christ and to enjoy Christ. The best life does not lie in going back to Judaism with its dead legalism. The best lies in knowing more and more and more of the great Lord Jesus, of experiencing more and more of his power, and so being equipped to live lives that bring glory to him. And listen, my dear friends here, this is, well, probably the last time that, that I'd be preaching here in Connor. I've enjoyed being with you through the years. I really have. But my prayer for you would be the same as the Apostles' prayer for the Hebrews. It is my heart's desire that each one of you here would know Christ personally through faith, but that you wouldn't be saved and stuck, that you would know more and more of the Savior, equipping you for service, and that you would be serving Him in this congregation and out in this community and to the wider world, and that your joy would come from serving Him and knowing Him, that you would recognize that your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We have a great God, my friends. We have a mighty Savior. So let's really get stuck in to serving Him and spreading the gospel message and making a real difference in our community for Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Let's just pray together.